I'm Neil Pickett. Welcome to Episode 7 of Making Art. Each episode of Making Art usually features a conversation between me and a fellow artist about their life and how they do what they do, but this episode is slightly different. And I will take an opportunity, this opportunity in fact, to apologise for the tardiness of this particular episode, but we here at Making Art are self-funded and for a while there the funds just dried up, which is a segue. Pretty lame, but a segue nonetheless into what this episode is all about. Over the past several weeks, two rather interesting books that deal with cultural policy have been published here in Australia. Dr Mark Williams' platform paper, Falling Through the Gaps, published by the venerable Currency House, takes a serious look at the increasing levels of poverty and the disturbing statistics surrounding mental health amongst our creative community. It's a compelling and at times disturbing read, and I'll be talking to Mark about that paper in the second half of this episode. But first, I'll be speaking with a man who, along with his Flinders University colleagues, Dr Tully Barnett and Professor Robert Fidian, has published one of the most, I want to say, controversial reflections on arts, culture and social policy, written, well, frankly, anywhere, in a very long time. In Australia and a number of other countries, the concept of value has been rather rapidly reduced to a singular metric money. And our myopic desire, at least politically, to see value in purely monetary terms has led to a serious problem when it comes to speaking about those things that have always been spoken about in terms other than money, like our arts and culture. Dr Julian Merrick currently holds the position of Strategic Professor of Creative Arts at Flinders University. He's a multi-award winning theatre director, former Associate Director of the MTC, and the author of several books on Australian theatre history. And the book he's co-authored, What Matters, Talking Value in Australian Culture, looks at the problems associated with applying that statistical measurement to our conversations around the making of and our relationship to art and culture. What happens when our culture becomes a number? I spoke to Julian on the phone from Adelaide and I began by asking him why they chose to write the book. Well, in 2013, when I, when I took up my chair at Flinders University as Professor of Creative Arts, I was invited to join a, a, an ongoing research project that was looking at a quantitative methodology for the Adelaide Festival. Um, so that, that's obviously an extremely big event here in South Australia. And uh, there was a new model, what economists call a contingency valuation model, that had been constructed with the help of a Swedish university. And my job was to supply a qualitative methodology to sit alongside this quantitative methodology. And I, I don't think we really need to, to go too much into what those two methods involved. Well, very shortly, within sort of 18 months, um, George Brandis became Minister for the Arts and thereafter followed a sort of explosion, really, um, of events, all of which upended 
any settled notion that we had about the arts and culture being evaluated in purely methodological terms. And instead it became very obvious um, that politics mattered more than methodology um, and ideology mattered more than ideas. And so we had to kind of completely reconceive the way in which we thought the process of evaluation was taking place in Australia. And from that came this little book. The process of evaluation has, over the last 30, 40 years, uh, moved from, I would guess, uh, uh, art is just art, culture is just culture, it exists, into a, a, a more functionist uh, yeah. kind of area, hasn't it? You, yeah, I mean, you're yeah. only of value if what you do can be measured. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, what you've just said has got sort of many little parts to it um, uh, because and all of those parts if you put them all together uh, mean that we have ended up in the sort of strange place that, that, that we have um, one is to acquaint the value of something with its its kind of effects whether they're social or economic rather than looking at the um, the, the thing itself um, and that tendency arises out of our, our, com- our, our current kind of economic beliefs, really, um, which are sometimes called neoliberalism. Um, and then another current within that is that the best way to describe something or describe the value of something is to, to do it numerically, which basically means you've got to measure it. So if you put those two things together, then... Um, you stop talking about arts and culture in a sort of critical and verbal way uh, and you end up with, you know, slide rules and calculators trying to work out, say, their economic impact or, you know, their social cohesion, things like that. So that, that journey um, uh, has more, is more or less a 50-year one, I think. It sort of started in the 60s and uh, depending on, you know, where you place today, it, it sort of reached its peak about now. So, I mean, numbers are great, and we see uh, numbers used as the the principal tool uh, for making policy decisions, but they only tell part of the story, don't they? Because numbers numbers without a narrative are nothing. Yeah, that that that's. I mean, that's absolutely right. Um, completely, uh, they, they they don't say anything at all. Um, I mean, that that sort of faith in numbers. Uh, I mean, that's a really interesting one. I I don't think it's always the case that we did have that face. I think it's it's kind of a relatively, not a new thing exactly, but there's a new emphasis on it. Um, and by the same token, and for reasons that have got nothing to do with quantitative methodologies, um, there's less an, of an emphasis on, on sort of narratives and contesting narratives. Um, and another way of saying that, perhaps a little bit more controversial, is to say that we don't really struggle over ideas in the way that we used to. We, we, we still struggle over personalities and styles, and, um, you know, you could see that in the recent ructions in Canberra the week before last, but we don't really seem to sort of believe in a, in a, in a world of alternative ideas. And when you don't have those alternative narratives competing with each other, then sort of in a way numbers fill the vacuum. So numbers around culture... How have numbers failed us, I guess, in describing what culture is and and what its value is? Yeah, well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, 
I mean, if you if you talk about this normally and you kind of go, oh, I'm looking at the problem of value, um, then you can you can just watch people's faces go all kind of stiff and cold, um, because the truth is that um, it, it's much more fun to to talk about arts and culture than it is to talk about the problems of valuing arts and culture, um, and that the only times that that people really concentrate on on the on the problem of value. Um, is either when they've seen something they don't like <laughs> and they don't think it should be supported or when they're in danger of losing it. Um, and, and then suddenly what they, they don't think about at all suddenly becomes the, you know, the central thought in their mind. So the, the problem of value is not with us on a constant, on a constant basis, at least not, not unless you're a policymaker. It sort of comes and goes. Um, and, and the truth is that numbers or a kind of numerical kind of expression of our relationship with arts and culture does okay most of the time, but when it hits trouble or it has to make a kind of serious decision, they're hopeless. Um, and they can, they can sort of inform a decision-making process, but they can't, they can't lead it. So in a way, the kind of obsession that we've got with numerical methods, which you see everywhere, I mean, it's not like it's just happening in arts and culture, it's everywhere. Um, those methods kind of let us down when we need to make important decisions. Um, and by that, I mean, um, for example, you know, do we support the ABC? To what degree do we support the ABC? Do we want an Australian film industry? Um, what kind of film industry do we want? Or, you know, should we, should we um, tax Google and Facebook in order to get them to support Australian content? These are sorts of things that, you know, numerical indices aren't really going to help you argue. No, and they don't, do they? Because uh, uh, culture, isn't, culture is about relationships. And what numbers fail to communicate is, is that sense of it being a relationship. So when we talk about the inherent cult uh, value of culture, I mean, how do you value a relationship? Well, it's, it's difficult. I mean, you, you have to talk about it. And when you talk about it, you, you often find that, um, you know, people disagree. Um, I, I was thinking about this um, this morning and, and thinking that uh, perhaps in no other area of our lives are we more likely to disagree than in our, our arts and, and cultural choices? And yet in no other area is agreeing of so little collective benefit. We, we don't really need to agree about arts and culture. The world isn't a better place because you and I both like Star Wars um, or, or Blue Poles. Um, so in a way, evaluation in arts and culture is, is, is different than in other areas because it, it doesn't need consensus. Um, it, it needs something else, which I think is kind of meaningful discussion. And that, that involves language, obviously, and language matters yeah, sure uh, yeah. when we use it. Uh, yeah. And what, we've, what, what, what appears to me, and what I think you make clear in the book, is that we've fragmented the story of culture. You know, we've got, we had arts and then we had cultural industries and now we've got creative industries and we've got a creative economy. And all these terms seem to do is distance us from the narrative of actually uh, of, of what art art and culture is, don't they? Yeah, I mean, they distance it in two ways. I mean, all the words that you've just used are what policymakers call operators of capture, um, which are, they, they don't, they're not really words that sort of exist in the world. They're not like, well, they're not like, you know, orange or, or apple or, you know, things that, 
um, words that point to things. They're, they're, they're just sort of general descriptions. Um, and you have to say that within the arts and cultural area, there are quite a lot of them. And they all overlap with each other in, in very uncomfortable and undefined ways. And on the whole, when we talk about evaluation, the, 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 the area in which evaluation happens the most is the policy area, um, which for people who are actually in the cultural se sector means money, means the grant-making process. There's more to policy than the grants-making process, but that's the sort of the sharp end of it, really. Um, and when that process becomes crowded with all these kind of poorly defined words, it can be a kind of hell. I think, for people who are trying to make sense of it, and also for governments who are trying to use these things without really a sufficient appreciation of just how deteriorated that language is. I did an article, uh, I wrote an article where I talked about um, people's answering a, a, um, a survey from the Australia Council about their experience of an art and... Uh, the the terms that were the terms that were used in the um, in that particular survey are very subjective. So it, it's difficult, isn't it, when we when we start to actually talk about the inherent value of culture, to find some language uh, that is agreeable to everybody, if you like, or has a common understanding. And if you take the word value, we've 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 eviscerated that word, haven't we? Yes, I, I think that's the real story here. Um, that, that it isn't that culture is particularly difficult to evaluate, or at least I'm sure it is, but then there are other things that are difficult to evaluate too. I think that it is our concept of evaluation that has diminished, and that's reflected in our deteriorated public language, which many people have talked about, including Don Watson, um, and also our inability to escape from equating value with money. Um, we just seem to come back to that one time and time again. It, it just seems a very hard sort of alcatraz to escape from. Which is bizarre, isn't it? Because if we think about it in our personal lives, what I value is my relationships. I don't... And I can't put a price on my girlfriend. Uh, and yet we want to put a price on the relationship we have with things we see. Yes, that's right. I mean, we want to be able to take it seriously, I think, which is, you know, a whole other order of business. Um, that you can do these sorts of things in the spirit of fun. Um, you know, kind of you can give, uh, you know, numbers to paintings or to symphonies as a way of ordering them in a casual way. Um, but as a society, we seem to want to do that in earnest. Um, and, I mean, that was um, brought to me... Um, made clear to me recently by looking at the $300 million evaluation on blue poles. And, you know, you, you may know that, that that painting was originally purchased by the Gough Whitlam government back in the early 70s, I think for $1.6 million or $1.26, I can't quite remember. Um, and so the current valuation is $300 million, But it's ridiculous because, you know, it doesn't really reflect, you know, a... a uh, any kind of meaningful economic good or service. You're not going to replace a Jackson Pollock painting with another $300 million good that's going to give you the same satisfaction. The number is completely arbitrary. It's just an expression of our religious faith 
in a sort of monetary system um, rather than any kind of connection with arts and culture per se. So that's the problem. The problem is we're using the tool to do something that was never designed to do. In the book, you mentioned that uh, not everything not everything that counts can be counted. The question, I guess, then becomes for, for all of us, how do we start to describe what we do? Because people always say, well, uh, you know, the, the, there is always a value judgment around creativity, whether it be as an individual artist, people will say, well, what have you been in? As if there is something that I could have been in that would be that would give my career or my my life some value. And if I say, look, I was on Blue Healers for 10 years, then suddenly I'm accepted as being something of value. Whereas if I say, oh, well, I've done a lot of theatre, they go, well, I don't go to the theatre. So how do, how do we collectively come to a, a point where we can just go, look, we need to have this stuff. We've always had it. People have always told stories. People have always created spaces in which we can empathise. Yeah. And if we say that, of course, we get called hand-ringers. So how do we actually have this conversation, public conversation? Yeah, well, I, I think when, at one point, when we were, I think, first launching the book about a month ago, and we were, you know, having a go at metrics, somebody stuck their hand up and said, but of course we still need to evaluate. And, you know, that took me back a bit because it was it was kind of offered um, a, as a sort of suggestion that somehow this book... Um, uh, makes the uh, the opposite case that somehow we don't need to evaluate, and that's qu quite wrong. Um, one thing that we say uh, as authors is that evaluation of arts and culture is one of the most difficult things that you can do, and you need to accept that that it's really hard. It's hard individually, and it's hard as a society. And in a way, our obsession with metrics is because we're looking for an easy way out, and there isn't one. Um, in terms of kind of an alternative, I mean, we do touch a little bit about, about this in the book. Um, to say, oh, you know, um, uh, you know the, the, the answer lies in language and a better use of narrative, which it does, um, you've got some broad choices there. You've got, you know, narrative as in Trump and narrative as in Tolstoy. You, you, you can tell stories well or you can tell them badly, um, but certainly it is the case that learning to use language in evaluation processes better, both individually and organisationally, is one of the things that we need to do in order to invest the processes that we've got at the moment with greater meaning and purpose. That said, if you have a, a hegemony, which is what we have, which which says that... Uh, the thing that 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 the cost benefit analysis or value is is tied to benefit. Yeah. Um, how do you create a dialogue that cuts through that? Well, one thing that you can do. I mean, one thing we say in the book is: is there a cost benefit analysis to our cost benefit analysis? Um, any, any kind of evaluation is an expensive business. And at what point do you go? Well, actually, this evaluation, this metrical evaluation isn't actually worth the candle. We can let this one go. Um, and I think that's the first question to, to ask is, you know, what is the cost of this constant obsession with measuring something? Um, the second thing is to start isolating out areas um, which economists uh, call false quantification, um, things that 
you know, we're doing that, that really we don't need to do because uh, the, the numbers don't tell us anything that we can really use. And, and just by sort of clipping the orbit, not by changing completely, but just by managing what, you know, is currently called the reporting burden, the assessment and evaluation of arts and culture is going to free up some time in which we can do other things. And then it's a kind of question of, well, what other things are we going to do? And, you know, we touch on a few of those in the book. Well, then, then we have to change the language of, um, of application, don't we, and, ap- and the language of acquittal, yeah. uh, because that's all now become geared around, you know, how, yeah. did, you, how did you create new audiences? And how is it innovative? I think uh, there's been a, a joke that both you and I have shared, which is the most innovative thing that's happened in in the theatre in the last 200 years was the invention of the electric light bulb. Yes, yes, that was the, that was the thing that changed everything. Um, 1871, I think, is when it was first used. Um, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And, and from a policy perspective, I think one of the things that... The, the book argues is that those kinds of, again, to use the technical phrase, operators of capture, those kinds of words, they're not very strong. They don't mean very much for all sorts of reasons. And uh, the policy process, at least in an evaluation sense, should use them less. Um, they're, they're not great words, to be honest. Uh, politicians love to use them, but they don't mean much. So then... What direction should we head down? I, in the book, there's there's the example of parable, uh, the parable of value. Yeah, uh, yeah. That, telling that's a right. story around why we should have what we have. Yeah, we, we 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 talk about parables of value. I mean, it's quite it's a fun thing. I mean, hopefully the book is fun. It's not not dreary in any way. Um, but it isn't, by the way. evaluation of arts and culture which is incredibly dry you have to say is 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 full of, of models and paradigms it, it's full of colored charts and um and graphs and statistical tables and and just things that look like um they've you know come from an escher painting really in some ways um and they they all have this one thing in common, which is they all drive towards producing a sort of definitive idea of what value is, whether that's, you know, an orchestra playing or whether that's a performance or a book or whatever. Um, and um, and so we, we had, as authors, we had a reaction against that and didn't want to propose a method um, because I don't think that... Um, the the answer to the problems that we've been discussing here, you, you're not going to find it in method alone, and probably not method at all. And instead, um, we we started to become more interested in in what you know scholars would call case studies, which are examples of things that resonate beyond their particular instance. So even though you're looking at, I mean, in the book we look at the drama of Patrick White. Uh, we look at some of the algorithms around um, uh, Spotify and a couple of other digital music uh, aggregators, and we look at the Adelaide Festival. Those are the three festival of ideas. Um, those are the three main uh, parables, uh, but there are some other ones as well. Um, and um, we chose those because they they cast light on the problem of value in a broader way. Um, and, I, and I think that that is an alternative way of thinking about value. It, it makes it a little bit more historically specific and geographically specific, but 
we all live our lives in time and place, so I don't think that that's a, that that's a bad thing. You mentioned the Adelaide Festival. There was a festival a number of years ago where uh, there was a performance, Peter Brooks' Mahabharata. Yeah. Um, which I remember seeing uh, people throwing bricks at each other across the stage. Yeah. And I think anyone who saw that remembers that. I don't remember how many people were there. No, I, I, I think that's right. Um, I mean, that, know, was a, that was a that was an extraordinary... Uh, sorry, I left a gap there for you to speak. And, and, but uh, it was an extraordinary production. I don't know that it was great, but it was extraordinary. And it changed my thinking around uh, theatre and changed my thinking around a lot of things. Um, now, again... This may sound like an elitist, you know, because I went and I'm a, a creative person and uh, people will say, oh, well, there you are. You, you know, it's not for me, it's for you. Uh, but it, it changed the way I thought. And I don't remember whether it was a thousand people or a hundred people there. Yeah. So I, I think with arts and culture, I don't think that that's a particularly elitist yearning, um, regardless of what art forms or what cultural practices people are attracted to, I think there is a yearning and perhaps even an aspiration for some kind of peak or transformative experience. I think everybody looks for that in their arts and cultural uh, encounters. If not always, then, then sometimes. And it is very difficult to map those, uh, those, those moments, those experiences onto, you know, measures of frequency but for just the reason that you've said which is that the number of people who attend something is is not a guide to the intensity of that particular event or experience um that there's just no relationship between them you can be in a small audience and have a great time and you can be in a large audience that are loving it and hate every moment of the thing that you're seeing i guess then the the question becomes for practitioners because in some ways I feel like over the last 40 years we've come to value what politicians value as, as, as kind of making it. For example, if you do a show at the Melbourne Theatre Company or you, you get a, 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 an art, a piece of work in a, in a big exhibition or a, or a gallery, that means that has come to mean something within the creative community itself, whereas... For me as a performer, I can say that the best experiences I've had as a performer have been in smaller venues where I've felt a, a very real connection to the people who are watching what I'm doing. How do we change our attitudes as practitioners uh, to, to this whole value question? Yes, it's an interesting question. I would put it in a different way. Um, we have to change the attitudes of our politicians towards arts and culture. That, that would be a more realistic and, I think, a more practical aim. I, I'm not sure that, that, that artists and cultural organisations need to speak the language of government. In fact, I'm pretty sure they don't. I think that governments need to learn to speak the language of arts and culture. Um, I think that's one of the implicit messages within this book, and I think the fact that uh, Australian governments in particular have such a poor grasp of arts and culture and have had really since Created Nation in 1994 is one of the reasons that the current situation makes no sense. So the solution then is for us to just stop, stop speaking the way we're speaking and start insisting that we have a conversation 
that actually relates to what we do? I, th I think so. I mean, like any relationship, there comes a point at which it needs to be rebooted. Um, and, and most people can recognise from their own lives that you can have an important relationship, and not for a moment am I saying that the relationship between governments and, and arts organisations and artists is not important. I think it is important. But um, a relationship, to, to be successful, has to work for both parties. Um, and at the moment, it, it really doesn't. And I'm afraid to say that I think that what's happening to the arts is, is symptomatic rather than exceptional. Um, Australian governments seem very inward-looking at the moment. They don't seem to be concerned with anything other than their own immediate electability and KPIs and their own ideological uh, obsessions, many of which reflect the things that we've been talking about in this conversation in terms of measurement and, um, you know, a kind of policy of KPIs rather than a policy of solid effects. So this is the is a, a follow-on from, I guess, Thatcher's idea that there is no community anymore because if we get rid of manufacturing, we actually dismantle the fabric of, of that industry. We're dismantling a community, aren't we? And if we do the same to art or culture, we're dismantling that the fabric of that community as well. Yes, I, I think you could say that um, while it, it may be arguable that you can stop making cars in Australia and, um, and get cars from Korea, say, um, and that the consumer, to use that language, won't really notice much of a difference. They'll still have a car and, you know, be able to get around the place. I, I think it's impossible to argue the same for arts and culture. Um, it's impossible to say, well, it do doesn't really matter if we stop writing our own books or stop making our own films because we'll just get the films from America or from Britain. Um, because most people would realise that, would see that as a fraudulent logic. Darling, that's done. Would you like to have a concluding comment? I would. Look, I think we're at a moment of decision. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, um, it's a kind of complicated time for Australia at the moment in many different ways. I think that there is a policy logic, and I'm, I'm trying not to use the word neoliberalism here because it, it gets chucked around a lot, but there's a kind of instrumental policy logic um, that has um, outworn its welcome, I think, um, and doesn't satisfy any longer some of the basic debates that are out there in the community, both on the right and the left, I have to say. And many of those debates are, are in the papers, you know, every day, and they involve things like immigration and energy policy and um, education. Um, arts and culture aren't in the papers every day in that way, but nevertheless, they are part of that public debate. Um, so there is... Um, there is, I think, now a, a moment when we can stop and say, well, what, what, what do we want from arts and culture? What, what matters? Which is why we call the book What Matters. Um, rather than just assuming that we can carry on in our usual data-driven way and come to a successful and meaningful result, because we won't. Business as usual won't cut it. No, <clears throat> Pardon me, and that's that's because, well, from my point of view, it's because we've lost the narrative. 
and and it, it it's particularly galling in an arts and culture sense. But when you start to see uh, policy being made purely on the numbers without any sense of narrative, uh, then the whole thing eventually starts to collapse and that's what I feel we're seeing now in a broader cultural sense or in a broader political sense. Yes, uh, in... I, th I think that's absolutely right and it's, it's at a time when arts and culture are getting much more complicated because of the, um, um, the segue or the links between, you know, the traditional world of the arts, which is quite small really, and the tech world, which is absolutely enormous. I mean, it's the it's, uh, they're the largest industries on the face of the planet, and probably the largest industries in human history. So um, the fact that those two things join up together, which they do, um, means that arts and culture and is now a formidably complicated area of policy making. Whereas governments, I think, are almost going backwards. Their, their idea, idea of arts and culture seems to have retreated from the 1950s to almost the 1930s. And I, I can't see that lasting. Julian, thanks for joining me. Oh, a pleasure, Neil. Thank you. They've taken my old pal away Somewhere over the sea Now we were so happy, I'd say But now life seems empty to me Now everything seems to have changed like the sunshine that turns into rain We were together in trouble In fun, a good double But they've taken my old pal away They've taken my old pal away Somewhere over the sea Now we were so happy, I'd say But now life seems empty to me Now everything seems to have changed Like the sunshine that turns into rain We were together in trouble in fun, a good double, but they've taken my old pal away. That's the only existing recording of a remarkable slice of Australian cultural history. The Mo Award winning actor, singer, comedian, and songwriter, the late Slim de Grey, singing one of his own compositions written in Changi Prisoner of War Camp during World War II, a song called They've Taken My Old Pal Away. And that tune is one of a great number of songs written by Australian prisoners of the Japanese during World War II. And the story behind its writing is an interesting one if we want to talk about the value of arts and culture. Because it was written in protest to his friends being sent to Sandakan without him. Friends who he joined up with, fought with, and become a prisoner of war with. It was one of the original songs performed by the Changi Concert Party that explored the culture of the POW camps, a song that speaks about the value of friendship, acknowledges the physical and emotional support that they gave each other, and the pain of loss. One of the songs that helped make sense of a world that they inherited as POW. 
And sadly, all of those friends of Slim's perished on the infamous Sandak and Ranau death marches of 1945, so he never did see his old pal again. It was conceived and composed without KPIs and measurements of economic benefit or audience development, which I suppose in today's world means that it has no value. You're listening to Episode 7 of Making Art. Making Art is released alongside a companion article about the featured artist, in this case books, written by me and published first in The Daily Review. The Daily Review is Australia's premier free online arts news and opinion site, and it's totally, totally self-supporting, relying on you, the reader, to keep it going. So, if you're a fan of quality arts journalism, I encourage you to get online and have a look. And while you're there, click on the menu, head to the support page, and consider a modest contribution that will help us maintain quality arts journalism as part of the national discourse. The Daily Review, like this podcast, is free, yes, and we all like free things, but the truth is that nothing costs nothing to make. All we ask is that you pay what you can, make a gold coin donation. And it may also help us cover the cost of making this podcast. You can also visit the Making Art website for helpful links to things that have been mentioned in our conversation at www.makingart.com.au. And that's the end of the cell. So, if value becomes a number and culture's value becomes something to be scaled, measured and benchmarked, what happens to those in our community who march to a different tune? Those who carry on a tradition that is older than recorded history and like Slim de Grey did in Changi, simply make things that help us make sense of our world and our place in it. Artists have always had it tough. It's an accepted occupational hazard. And while in contemporary society our star artists assume godlike status, what happens when you limit opportunities for the average artist by imposing that singular metric, that very narrow expression of value on making art? Well, you end up with a book like Falling Through the Gaps, Dr Mark Williams' platform paper that looks at the effect our metric-obsessed cultural policy has had on artists and their welfare. Here's Mark Williams. Well, I, I really think things have changed. Um, <clears throat> that could be in a sense that one j- just is a little bit older and you can see it now, um, where in the old days you'd go around to mates who were act- actors and they'd have the most brilliant gardens and they could almost all cook brilliantly. Um, because they care about the good life and making do with what you got. Mm. Um, and that was something that I just found wonderful in my 20s and 30s and early 40s. Uh, but then you see what's happening in people's 50s. They are the respected members of the profession. They're doing all of this work and yet you talk to people and they're getting the gigs are shorter um, the money is there, yeah, and it's probably better than it was, um, but there's not as much of it. Um, I'd question whether it's better <coughs> than it was. Um, I would say that particularly in th- something like television, I don't think it's really shifted in the last 15 years, to be honest. 
um, and what's happening instead of you know, the old three-day minimum or something like that, they'll jam you into a day and say so you'll be all over an episode of television for 1500 bucks or something like that. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. funny thing is that, that um, <coughs> when I was doing a bit more film and TV work than I do now, to get $100,000 for, uh, for a television episode, um, you know, the television hour, 50 minutes, uh, was almost impossible. Where now the producer's offset requires you to be spending a million dollars an episode. And that's because the international competition you're expecting to spend a million um, or two or three if you're Netflix. So the money, the total money is, is much, much greater. But the pressure to do more and more and more with it has never been higher because we're competing internationally. Again, when I was in Oxford, people would be jammed around neighbours morning and afternoon. It was. I know. My nieces in Britain, I was compelled to do neighbours just so they could say, because that's the show they watched. It's interesting. One, one, one came out uh, and I took her to the neighbours night at the Elephant Wheelbarrow and this photograph of her and Alan Fletcher has pride of place on the mantelpiece at home. Another was out when I opened a play. Uh, when the rain stops falling at the Melbourne Theatre Company and uh, I got her photograph taken with Geoffrey Rush and that <laughs> who happens to be an Oscar winner and that photograph isn't on the mantelpiece. <laughs> it's a measure of just how much Neighbours is yeah. uh, but <clears throat> Even at that stage, without the international sales, Neighbours would not have been made. I mean, as it is, it's, it's still getting made. Um, Predominantly for those international, for yeah. that international market. But the cost pressures have been, now that it's, it's gone to um, off free to wear, cost pressures to do everything in one take, um, you know, hit your mark. Um, but this is policy out of step with the reality, isn't it? Well, of course it is. Um, you know, the funny thing about working on a film set is that everyone is there furiously setting up for the next shot and the next shot and the next shot and it's the actors who get the least time on stage. I was talking to an actor who probably better re remain nameless who was on an international feature film, um, Australian film of, um, uh, you know, major Australian novel and he got onto set to play a character who was a lifelong friend of the star and he sort of had to plead to get in and out of the armchair once just to know what it felt like because they were the pressure and this on a feature film was to get his scene done in in that one take um, or in that one day whatever it and in that to be. one day and you know there wasn't even time to let him get familiar with the furniture in a room that the character was supposed to have lived in for the last 20 or 30 years you know um, that's a measure of the the efficiencies. Now, it's amazing, you, of course you get paid the big bucks for diving at exactly the right moment when all the jet fuel goes off and they get the special, um, they get the, the money shot. Um, of, and the pressure on that is also huge. And you would anticipate, as I was hearing with George Lazenby talking about doing his, his James Bond, he was in training for a year um, to get you know properly built up and learn all the skills that he had to 
have for that one Bond movie that he, you know, he couldn't ski, he couldn't shimmy along ropes, he couldn't do all of the, all of the things that were expected. But for the ordinary actor, uh, you're just expected to know this all, and the the pressure to do it really efficiently um, just neglects, denies the creative process. It seems to me. And the upshot of all that, of course, I mean, when we talk about it from an economic point of view is, uh, you know, people without holiday pay, people without, with inadequate superannuation, people without sick leave, people without uh, a financial buffer. Uh, now, again, no one's holding a gun to the heads of these people, but if you create policy that creates pressure, that creates monetary pressure, that means that uh, there, there isn't the opportunity for people to actually earn when they do do the job. Um, that has implications at ages like mine, Absolutely. 57. I mean, I, I had these discussions before the launch with Susan Cooper of Entertainment Assist and um, as they were trying to work out what to do, they came to the conclusion that mental health was the thing that they had to tackle first. Um, and she spoke very eloquently about that and they've put some numbers around this. I suppose the more I looked at it, um, mental health is uh, or ill health is a function too of other things that are going wrong, particularly a sense of stability in one's life and a sense of groundedness. I mean, what could be more grounded, you would think, than to work with the great works of literature or to be working in social, the social making of art? Um, fantastic experiences. And yet, if you haven't got these other things right, um, you wind up um, very insecure. Um, so this was one of the reasons that I put around this, and I've tried not to blame anyone here. No, uh, it's not a blame thing. Because this has been a, a, a gradual wreck within modern capitalism, which we're finding is now, well, it's now finding expression in all sorts of crazy behaviours. Um, and not just in the creative Sphere. Not in the creative... Uh, the creative sphere is something of a canary in the coal mine, if you like, because if you take a, a casualised workforce like the, the, the creative workforce and then you take away the community or the sense of community or the fabric of that community, you leave them with very little else. That, you know, suddenly, you know, you, you don't belong to anything because yeah. there is nothing to belong to. Similarly with manufacturing, I guess. I mean... People won't worry where they get their cars. Well, I suppose something that I do a fair bit of is IT and graphic design as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm working with performers, I'm working with creative people in all these creative industries, which our immediate past Prime Minister um, said was the, the future, you know, that we all had to be nimble and global and all the other thing. Well, uh, the graphic designers have already hit that wall. Where once upon a time you earned very, very good money uh, designing web pages for people. Now anyone can do it, um, and it'll be passable. Um, a great web page is still 
takes a lot of work to put together. But the cost pressures are now such that people just don't get paid what they used to be. Uh, IT has been a place that's been uh, casualised since the year dot. People are on these very short-term contracts and yet they, at the moment, expect to pick up the next one and the next one and the next one and buy houses and have mortgages and cars and families and things like that. But if you look at the way actors have gone, more educated, um, specialist trained, uh, in areas that reach global markets, etc., etc., and yet uh, it seems from the statistics, it's clear from the statistics that people are doing worse. Well, graphic design, IT, uh, contract driving, uh, all sorts of things uh, are going to be going down this path as well. I guess, but I guess part of the problem with, with culture, or let's call it creative, the creative sphere is, uh, it's endemic. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, it, <laughs> culture isn't kind of global. Our culture is not global. And if you apply, apply a global model to something that is uh, endemic, um, or, or not endemic, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, um, well, it belongs here. Our yeah. culture is our culture. You can't apply a global model <laughs> yeah, to something. You can't use the word indigenous. Uh, well, that was the word I was looking for. I knew it began with a vowel. <laughs> <laughs> As you've been waxing about how well educated we are. <laughs> What's that word? Um, but uh, culture, uh, at the moment, the, the remarkable thing is that because we're an English-speaking country and we're either the fourth largest English-speaking market in the world or the fifth, depending on who you talk to, um, our stuff is portable. If you look at the visual artists, by contrast, um, it's really hard to break out of your own town, let alone um, out of Australia. Uh, so there are plenty of well-known Brisbane and Sydney painters who never sell a picture um, outside their own town. Uh, likewise, there are people working in studios here who are unheard of in Melbourne or Sydney, but they sell very well in Brisbane. Or there's one guy who sends 20 canvases to his gallery in Scotland every year mm. and um, well-known in niche markets. So even within creativity, there's... More broadly. There's quite remarkable pockets. And, of course, that's what ought to make it special. And, of course, at the moment we are having this wrestle with indigeneity and this idea that there's one Aboriginal culture is at least mercifully now out the window. Everyone now would expect, even the average person, as a mate of mine once put it, can tell the difference between the X-ray art and the dots and spots art. Um, but of course there's way more um, to that. Regionalism within uh, cultures and even particularity within cultures. We used to have this fantastic inner urban Melbourne uh, culture and for the f I don't spend much time in Melbourne on weekends these days, but to be in Fitzroy last Friday, the place was pumping. Every single pub was full. Uh, the conversations were uh, fantastic, and you really felt well. That is the same uh, milieu that spawned uh, or that created this group of remarkable artists we we know and 
been privileged to, to work with over that over those years. Uh, that's a real living, breathing culture. And how is it that we're it, it's not going to the next level anymore? It doesn't seem to be anyway. I mean, we have. I know in Melbourne we had uh, just. 20 years ago, there were seven professional theatre companies in Melbourne. Now there's two. Um, uh, our live music scene's kind of really taken a bit of a hit. Um, the gallery scene's down. Um, is it this? And, and that is having a flow-on effect. Oh, I mean, very much. I, everyone can point to different moments. I mean, I came back from England and that... Uh, November 1987, that was the six-month period where Neighbours basically sacked all their actors and uh, recruited models instead, um, and that phase went for a long time. At the same time, the middle got cut out of the funding, so Ant Hill um, stopped. Um, uh, Theatre Works ceased to be a theatre company and became... Um, a venue. A venue. Uh, and there have been problems now with all the major state companies. The Sydney Theatre Company tried to have an ensemble for all, for two years, uh, and that hit the wall. Uh, the reality is that our theatre companies are ensembles of administrators. They're not ensembles of creative people. Mm. Oh, to be fair, it's also the um, the workshop staff um, who are the only constant, really. Yeah. Um, and amazing, uh, and again, those within the business know just how amazing they are um, and how they're stringing together um, livelihoods that involve some of it, you know, 7 to uh, 4.30 work um, in the workshop and others of it, incredibly irregular hours, working 50 or 60 or 70 hour weeks during production weeks to get, uh, get things happening. Um, which has got its own problems associated with it in terms of uh, health, mental health and, and, and all the rest of it. So these creative hubs, the, the social making of art uh, at a professional level has been cut back and cut back both as the middle companies have disappeared and the major state companies aren't what they were. But the support of the society for the art forms at that grassroots level uh, needs needs to step up. We need middling companies because at the moment the big companies rely on um, people to come from somewhere. They don't just spring fully formed and fully trained out of drama school. Um, and that's a real problem as well. Uh, you know, a few actors like yourself have um, strung together an entire 30-year career uh, and when I look at some of the other marvellous people who have put together um, lives in this area, I'm, I'm in awe, uh, frankly. Uh, and uh, you know, it hasn't come. It has come at a cost. It though. does come at a cost. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that you talk about in your book is um, mental health, obviously, but suicide rates amongst people in the creative. Sector, and I'm not just talking about actors here. I'm talking about stage management, people in workshops, uh, uh, visual artists, the whole box and dice. Um, what are those stats? Um, 
The, the stats come from a Victoria University Entertainment Assist report, um, and it was looking um, at a, a group of musicians, sound recorders, backstage people, and actors. Um, the musicians and backstage people in particular had a attempt, suicide attempt rate twice as high as the uh, population. But the symptoms of depression, anxiety, which lead to these suicidal um, tendencies and thoughts were up to nine times higher than the general population. And going into that a little bit further, the study speculated that um, lack of home life, irregular hours, sleep patterns, um, and um, euphoria associated with late night, um, finishing late at night, can be really very dangerous. And I was talking, uh, I was interviewed the other week on the ABC by a professor of psychiatry. Afterwards, he was saying this, he confirmed that when your adrenaline levels go through the roof at the end of a performance or, or whatever, and you need to calm down and it's four hours after that and it's suddenly two in the morning and you will have had a few drinks uh, which, you know, do uh, relax you. It's, you know, alcohol's a depressant. Mm. Um, and there's no one to talk to and when you get a, you know, get up at um, whatever time you get up in the morning, everyone else has disappeared as well. It can be a very lonely uh, existence and uh, certainly not good for um, uh, your health levels. He was also saying that clinically it's very difficult to treat when people come in um, with great anxiety or manic depressive symptoms. Um, in some cases, uh, the medical profession itself is not very good at treating extroverts um, or treating people who are used to coming up smiling and, and being gracious and loving. Well, that's part of the problem too, isn't it? Because uh, uh, you would think, well, people do think that, you know, hi diddly D and act as life for me. Uh, and yeah, it's terrific, uh, but it does come at a cost. Uh, and again, uh, no one's holding a gun to our head, but uh, if you take the community away, because that's the place we used to talk. I remember we used to go, you get to the malt house on a Friday night, everyone would be there. But we've become so disparate as a result of the collapse of that thing you were talking about, the mid-range, and uh, we're just not seeing people like we used to. We don't do things like radio plays at the ABC anymore where we get together and we have some fun um, and we talk about the stuff that's going on for us. And, and then you talk to someone in the street, you've got the dual problem of m mental illness not really being... I mean, we pay lip service to the idea of it being accepted, but we still think, come on, get over yourself, and B, you, you really should get over yourself because look at you, you're an actor and you're having a great time. Well, the art Centre, for example, used to have a crew bar, a, a big green room uh, with a pool table in it and all sorts of things. No, like that's that. gone. That long, 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 long time ago. Um, and, I mean, that is the most amazing pulsing uh, beast uh, particularly at festival time when there are big shows bumping in and bumping out all the time. Or, for example, up at Her Majesty's and, and The Princess and The Regent where you've got a big show bumping in and bumping out and you'll have three crew crews on rotation. 
Um, but the corporatisation of these institutions has led to, you know, and I, well, we're not welcome. <laughs> we're welcome when we're performing, but we're not welcome otherwise. We're not a part of the fabric of anything. I mean, you can't walk into the MTC as an actor in Melbourne who's reasonably well known and expect them to let you through the front door to go and say hello to anyone. No, no. It's, uh, you know, workplace health and safety and all that sort of passive-aggressive um, assault on common human decency and social behaviour. And community. Behavior. And community. Um, uh, you can say, look, it's, it's, it's no one's fault. These things have all crept up on us. Um, fringe benefits tax actually had a, a, an exception for staff cafeterias, but no one built them um, because the bean counters are too scared that people might talk to one another and spend a little bit too much time lingering over a cup of coffee. Um, the arts <coughs> whole of South Bank remains a wasteland but for that Malthouse Theatre bar. Mm. Um, the Arts Centre drinks are now so expensive the orchestra can't afford them and where once upon a time there was Auntie Sue's over the back, um, there is no cheap and cheerful pub within Cooey. Um, we've created these great mausolea all over um, uh, regional Victoria, regional New South Wales, regional Queensland, South Australia, which have got one or two techs looking after the place most of the time and uh, everyone's just expected to make instant culture um, and disappear off again at the end of it and, and not disturb the furniture and not scuff the carpet too much. Uh, it's it does feel very alienating. I um, don't want to overdo it because, of course, the profession for years has been renowned for being, um, you know, darling this and darling that and, um, uh, and you know, there's an argument out in the wider world that this place is populated with princesses and, and fragile egos. Uh, there are reasons you need to treat people well in uh, in a creative environment. Well, at least just treat them with respect, I think. Um, I think I said this because I actually attended the launch of your book. Um, don't necessarily want lots of money, but wouldn't mind um, just an acceptance of the reality yeah. of what's <coughs> taking place. And look, we've seen, we've seen this too with, you know, the old-fashioned working-class ideals, the old-fashioned peasant ideals. You know, Christos Chalkas wrote this marvellous novel called Dead Europe about the death of the, the, of, of the values that, that grew up while people were in adversity. Um, instead, we've been all forced to become these economic units who behave... Um, rationally in economic terms and will always seek a profit where a profit's to be had. Um, this is where the, the more sophisticated economics, which talks about psychic satisfaction and uh, the trade in um, value that we have within culture, makes a lot of sense. Uh, but that's one of the themes in the platform papers, really, that there is this disconnect now between psychic satisfaction and uh, material well-being. We could all go back to Bhutan. I think it's Bhutan where they've got the happiness. Happiest country in the world. Happiest country in the world. Poorest. Got bugger all, but they're as happy as Larry. 
poorest country in the world, um, working out how to stay happy in um, a country which seems to have just valued wealth and consumption above uh, all else. Well, I think this is a, the thing about if you're going to look at the arts, you've got to look at it in a, you've got to kind of balance the quantitative data against the qualitative. At the moment, it seems to be all quantitative. How much does it make? What is its economic return? Uh, I don't think in those terms, and I find it difficult to. Now, maybe there are artists that, that can think in purely quantitative terms, but I simply can't. And, it, and yet the rhetoric around it is all quantitative and not, there is nothing qualitative about it. And uh, the, the problem there is, of course, that culture is relational. It's not transactional. Um, yes, you pay for your ticket, but what actually takes place is personal and it is a relationship that you have. And that's, you know, we, we got into really screwy economics um, in, uh, you know, a lot of European countries. There will be an incredible variation in pricing so that you ensure that, um, you know, pensioners, students, um, all sorts of people are are able to see work for a price they can afford. Um, you know, now it's sort of, um, for the big musicals, it's sort of four-tiered pricing and all of it's very expensive. I think it starts at like 100. When you add in then the cost of getting yourself into um, the big venues and, and um, dressed up and maybe give yourself a meal or, or pay for a babysitter or something like that, these become quite big decisions. What do you see as a solution? Do you see there is a solution or is it something that we just have to readjust our expectations around? Well, I think we've got to recognise there's a problem and um, God knows you know there's one. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and hands up, you know, suicide attempt, mental health issues, six months in a, an institution. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, also, and, you know and not able to afford it, yeah. you know, not able to afford it and having to go to a charity to actually bar me out. But somehow to know that there's another side to this, that, that um, mental health is a, is a health issue, there are cures. Um, mm. One can get better from these things. Again, um, I'll stick my hand up. And, you know, that's really important for, for people who um, are just seeing the, the world as you know, through a black crystal ball and saying no, no future. There are, there are futures. Um, for those people who have made their careers sitting in the dark, you know, waiting for the next cue to pull, uh, it's very hard to uh, get those people to, to open up and, and say, I've got, these, I've got these problems. Well, like I said before, um, we're not meant to because we're doing what we love. Yeah, yeah. So recognising there's a problem and uh, throwing some numbers around it is, is part of it, but on that platform paper I reckon there's either statistics that need to be assembled or studies that need to be done on almost every page about what we just don't really know uh, about the dimensions of the problem or the causes of problems or the symptoms. Second is, uh, of course, um, more money would be nice, but unless you won't get that from government unless you put a, a really good case together. Um, one of the things that I do 
professionally as a lawyer is to try to work out ways of doing things better uh, that don't cost more money. In some cases, will save you money because it'll, they'll save you money in terms of health, in terms of disability pensions, in terms of all sorts of other things like that. So um, whilst government does not want more people to be listed as unemployed on Centrelink benefit, the reality is that the Centrelink benefit is um, just mad when it comes to assessment of what actors do, performers do to put their day, you know, to earn their daily bread. So you could fix Centrelink rules very quickly. Um, we've got this huge build-up in superannuation and yet the superannuation funds, as we heard on the, the Melbourne launch, have their hands tied by legislation. They can't actually invest in social housing for their own members uh, to give them uh, reduced rent or anything like that. Now, I think that's, that's crazy. Um, investing in good social housing should be something that will pay off long-term for the superannuation funds and provide benefits for members in not the just short for, term. Not just for the creative community, but for the, for the, for the, for the population. For the general population. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And look, I'm hearing uh, rumblings that uh, we're, you know, this isn't a, a, a fresh, um, bright idea, that there are, you know, governments really looking at it at hard at the moment. Um, and I have emphasised over and over again, and we, we see it in the minutes of the Actors Benevolent Trust for the last 60 years, housing being able to provide either emergency or crisis accommodation, but also um, stability for uh, people, uh, whether they're in work or out of work, uh, has huge psychic benefits for people. Um, and so we're exploring those ideas as well. It's, in a sense, it's, it's a little bit easy to say, oh, if only so-and-so had a house, they'd hmm. be able to get their, their lives back on track. But you see it over and over again. The task that, and it's the same for a small theatre company, I say it in the platform paper, the task is to make sure that the house doesn't run you. Um, so many people, myself included, feel enthralled on the mortgage and it stops you from doing a lot of other things that you might want to do and you might be really good at doing. Mm. Um, so social housing is one, one of the big things I think that we've, we've come across as being uh, a way out of the present um, mess or in a funny sort of sense a return to the past. Um, yeah, and is it that thing too of kind of going, no, look, we, we, we have culture uh, and that's the thing that uh, we use. I mean, every society since the dawn of time has had a way of expressing itself and has had storytellers and uh, people who've created spaces in which we can empathise or we can begin to understand the world around us. Is it something about kind of just accepting that the, we, have, we have these people uh, and they're not going to earn a lot of money and we don't have to give them extra special treatment, but we have to accept that some parts of any society can't be counted in the same way. You can't measure their value. You can't, you can't make some things functionist 
some things you have that just will never fit into that unit of economic uh, output model. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think this is where you know under European countries have looked at their social systems and social security systems and said, well, no, we we should allow uh, you know we should regard our artists and exponents of culture as a public good, um, just as we need to have cheap inner city housing so that we can have police, ambulance people, nurses, cleaners still living within um, a sensible distance of where they work and do essential jobs, so too should we be providing uh, support in some sort, of, in some way, for our artists. This is not to call them superhuman or, or um, treat people with um, kid gloves or some sort of, you know, privileged or elitist um, status which, which goes against the general Australian ethos. But within Europe, particularly the Dutch, who pioneered this status of the artist legislation that says you've got a track record, we can't afford to lose your 40, 50 years of experience. Or as a sector, we can't afford to lose, uh, you know, the six or 800 people who speak this particular kind of cultural language. And, you know, you could even translate it into... into all sorts of other other tasks. So status of the artist legislation, which actually allows um, a standard stipend to be there as a safety net, um, is something that that was last looked at in Australia in 2002-03, got rejected. We think it's probably another time to start looking at it as part of the package. Again, in terms of cost, likely to be very small. Well, it's the doll, yeah. <laughs> the doll or the stipend. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, Ireland's got a a sort of college of two hundred and fifty of their artists um, who are entitled to a slightly higher uh, fund, and you could, you know, attract private philanthropy to to do this. Um, our taxation system is. Uh, would, would need to be tweaked, however, to, to make that work. Um, but that's where, you know, uh, these technical questions can follow. From, from a willingness to from do something. Yeah. To yeah. do something. Yeah. Hey, thanks. That was Making Art, Episode 7. My thanks to Drs Julian Merrick and Mark Williams for allowing me into their creative spaces, or in this case, their telephone. What Matters, Talking Value in Australian Culture, is published by Monash University Publishing and is available in all good bookstores. And Falling Through the Gaps is, of course, published by Currency House and is available in selected bookshops or digitally. Digitally from Currency Press. I hate that word. Colam for Saxophone Quartet, our theme music was composed by Melbourne's Tim Dargaville and performed by Sydney's Continuum Sax. Artwork for the podcast and the Making Art website is by Melbourne artist Darren Henderson of Dirty Good and our website was designed by Pixel Shifter. Technical production is by Ben Churchill at Sonic Playground and the show was produced by me, Neil Piggott. 
Join me in a fortnight, yes, it will be a fortnight, when I will present the last episode of this season of Making Art from a shed in Preston, where I spoke with the internationally celebrated Australian playwright, Tom Holloway. And don't forget to check out Australia's number one arts pages at the Daily Review and our website, www.makingart.com.au. I'll leave you now with a piece of music that I can't put a value on, not in monetary terms anyway. It just astonishes me, and I'd be interested in hearing what you value. Drop me a line and I'll read a few responses next episode. Here is the incomparable Yo-Yo Ma and Zoltan Cordoy's Sonata for Cello, Opus Number 8. See you next week, or next fortnight.
Thank <laughs> you. 